to the Cincy Reformed Podcast. My name is Zach. I'm here with Brandon, and we are co-pastors at uh, Westside Reformed Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. And today we're going to be reflecting and uh, conversing on the topic of the doctrine of inerrancy. Inerrancy. And so, Brandon, as we uh, get uh, going here, maybe you could kind of help us to think about what this word inerrancy uh, means, what it's affirming, and also why this word is now being used, because in the past, it wasn't really used. As you go back to some of the uh, reformers and those who are really emphatic about the importance of a doctrine of Scripture, but now in our day, we have begun to use this term inerrancy. Maybe you can kind of begin to clarify what's going on there. Yeah, for sure. As language uh, changes, uh, sometimes there needs to be new words to kind of help define what we mean. Uh, Jerry Packer, he he was talking about, you know, why why do we have this kind of shifting? Whereas a long time ago, people could say, well, I believe the, that the Bible's inspired. And what they meant by that is that that uh, the Bible was breathed out by God, and obviously that it's it's true. It's it's not um, you know it's not filled with contradictions or anything anything like that. And and that's what they meant when they said the Bible is inspired by God. And then what happened was, Jerry Packer said, uh, v- verbal currency, as we know, can be devalued. And what happened was people came and said, well. I believe the Bible is inspired by God, but it's filled with contradictions. And so people started saying, well, okay, maybe we need to, to, to clarify what we mean then. You know, I, I not only believe the Bible is inspired, I think it's infallible. And so in, the word infallible um, had some currency for a long time, and that word infallible uh, is actually a stronger word than inerrancy, in all honesty. Infallibility means it's impossible to err. There's, there, there's just an impossibility because of the nature of the biblical text that it is infallible, it is true, and it is not false, and it's not riddled with contradictions. It is, in fact, God's Word. And so for a while, that kind of um, held verbal currency, as Packer talks about, and people came about who said, well, I believe the Bible's inspired, and I believe the Bible's infallible. And I actually met somebody who's who, who made this argument to me. They said, I believe the Bible is inspired and fallible, all of that, but it's filled with contradictions. It's, it's, you know, then, and, and, and the contradictions are there because men are fallible, and so we, we have contradictions. But, but the text itself is, is, is infallible. And to my mind, that doesn't make any sense, but somehow it was being, it was being argued that they were holding to the doctrine of infallibility while, in fact, uh, concluding that there's errors in the Bible. And so, again, people started using the word now, inerrancy, to clarify what we mean. And, and that is, the Bible is breathed out by God. It is true. It is not false. It's not riddled with contradictions. There, there are no errors. And the word inerrancy means, in fact, that the Bible does not error in its original autographs, as the Holy Spirit empowered and wrote through the human authors that they wrote exactly what God had intended them to write, and there's no errors in it. There's no contradictions in it. There's nothing false in it. It is true truth, 
and that is, I think, what is what is being what is being put forth. Um, e. J. Young, he said, to maintain that there are flaws or errors in the Bible is the same as declaring that there are flaws or errors in God Himself. So if you say there's errors in the Bible, you're saying there's errors in God because God wrote the Bible. And so the doctrine of inerrancy it was put forth to protect the uh, the character of God's sacred word as true, not false, not contradictory, and as something that is putting forth actual facts and truth and not errors. Uh, and so, but, you know, all that's well and good, Zach, but is that, is that biblical? Is that something that the Bible itself is putting forth? Yeah, that's a, that's a, the question to ask, isn't it? Because if the Bible doesn't make that claim about itself, then is the doctrine of inerrancy biblical? And we certainly do see this within uh, Scripture. Uh, I do want to jump back to something that you mentioned just mm -hmm. a second ago in terms of being breathed out by God. And that that's this concept of inspiration, um, it, it really is connected with that exhale, that out-breathing of, of God, that that text is the thing that then results as the inspired thing. I think it's just, I wanted to, to mention to note that oftentimes we speak colloquially about all the apostles were inspired or the prophets were inspired or something, but really it's the text that's inspired. And it's the text that was breathed out. Because, you know, Peter could have made mistakes. He did make mistakes. We see that in the book of Galatians. He had to be rebuked. So there are, there are things that the, mm -hmm. that the uh, apostles and prophets could have made errors with in their lives, generally speaking. However, it's just not with the text that was then produced from them. And that's just to, want to make sure that's clear for us. And it's also helpful to note, too, when he's, we also speak colloquially sometimes about the word inspired. Mm -hmm. And we almost like devalue it where we, we go to the art gallery and that's we say right. oh that that that, that uh, that's really inspiring or the mm -hmm. artist was was so inspired we speak about inspiration in a way that's not what scripture speaking about scripture speaking about inspiration like you mentioned that exhale it is from the mouth of god mm -hmm. from god himself yeah. so yeah absolutely but yeah the, the holy scripture does um, affirm not only with that doctrine of exhale or uh, inspiration but it also does uh, affirm elsewhere, like Proverbs 30, verse 5, that every word of God is flawless. Or if we think about Psalm 12, verse 6, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. In the Gospel of John, we read, Jesus speaking about God's word, where he says in verse 17 of John 17, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. And perhaps a final place to go here, Isaiah 65, verse 16, he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth. And so again, I think that kind of helps us to see that connection between our doctrine of God and our doctrine then of God's word that God has ensured by this doctrine of inspiration or exhale that the God of truth then produces through those apostles and prophets a text of truth and that that flawless uh, unfailing character is the way we describe the text that those apostles those prophets 
the men of old, like Moses, the text that they produced was flawless and uh, without error. Now, as you mentioned earlier, Brandon, that you've spoken to somebody, and so have I, to somebody who tried to affirm a doctrine of infallibility while denying inerrancy, to me, again, makes no sense at all. And they try to say, oh, this is just a modern invention. Oh, this is not the way that the, the church has historically uh, conceived of it. We're just being uh, modernists or something like that. <laughs> and so I think it's probably worthwhile uh, for us to reflect a little bit about the uh, church fathers and those who've gone before us who really did also affirm this sort of doctrine. So maybe, Brandon, you can kind of lead us in that direction as well. Yeah, sure. And, and I've heard the same thing, like, well, you know, inerrancy is just the product, product of the Enlightenment. You know, mm -hmm. it's this modern thing that nobody was concerned about, you know, throughout church history. But all of a sudden, these modern Christians uh, are really excited about it, these fundamentalists or something. And it's like, no, this was a concern throughout the entire history of the church. So I have a few uh, quotations just to kind of survey some of the church fathers and what, what they've said about, uh, about this idea. So, for example, uh, Church Father Origen, he said, And likewise, he becomes a peacemaker as he demonstrates that which appears to others to be in conflict in the scriptures is no conflict, and exhibits their concord and peace, whether of the old, test or the old scriptures with the new, or of the law with the prophets, or of the Gospels with the Apostolic Scriptures, or of the Apostolic Scriptures with each other. So what he's saying is, there's people who are trying to pin Scripture against Scripture and show all these contradictions between Old and New, between Law and Prophet, between you know Peter and Paul, or whatever it is, and he's saying no. And he actually says, if you... As you smooth things together, and as you as you show how they come together as a unified whole without contradiction and error, you are actually a peacemaker. And he's exhorting Christians to be, to be peacemakers by showing um, the harmony of all of the texts of the Bible. Another church father, Justin Martyr, said, Since I am entirely convinced that no scripture contradicts another, I shall admit that I do not understand what is recorded and shall strive to persuade those who imagine that the scriptures are contrary, contradictory rather, to be rather of the same opinion of myself. So again, he's, he's arguing against the idea of contradiction and um, St. Augustine is going to kind of unpack some more of what, of what uh, Justin Martyr was saying. St. Augustine said, For it seems to me that most disastrous consequences must follow upon our believing that anything false is found in the sacred books. In other words, if you think there's something false in the sacred books, it's going to spin rabbit trails and consequences um, from that, and you're going to be in a world that is just unhealthy, unbiblical, not, and even non-Christian. He goes on to say, St. Augustine says, I have learned to yield this respect and honor only to the canonical books of Scripture. Of these alone do I most firmly believe that the authors were completely free from error. And if in these writings I am perplexed by anything which appear to me opposed to truth, I do not hesitate to suppose that either the manuscript is faulty or the translator has not caught the meaning of what was said, or I myself have failed to understand it. 
In other words, if he's reading the Bible and he's, he's finding something that doesn't line up, he's, he, he immediately wants to say, the fault is not in God, the fault is not in the apostles or whoever's writing this book, the, the, the fault is not in the book. The fault is in my understanding, maybe I just don't understand it. Or perhaps a manuscript that I'm reading from, maybe it has like a, a scribal error. But that's not an error that was given, you know, that, that was intrinsic to the Bible. That's an error of, of a scribe. But we have so many manuscripts. And again, we've, we've done a podcast on uh, manuscript issues. But we have so many manuscripts, so, so we just need to go to a, a more faithful manuscript, perhaps. But um, so he's saying if, if, there's, if there's an error, it's scribal or I'm just too dumb to understand. And I'm happy to be that way because we never want to um, say, well, this must be an error with Paul's writing. It must be an error in the Gospels or anything like that. And so I think that the the church fathers have shown that no, we must, in, in fact, affirm the truthfulness of Scripture. And if we don't, we're, it's going to go back to God. Our view of God will diminish if our view of sacred Scripture diminishes. And even uh, just to add one more text that we didn't bring up, when you read through Revelation, you'll see this phrase, just and true, and or faithful and true. And that phrase, faithful and true, interestingly, is used to speak about God. God is faithful and true. But in the same breath, that's also said of his writing, his words. His words are faithful and true. So it's interesting that in the book of Revelation, that same phrase is being attributed to God and to the words of God, to where there's this link where if his words are not faithful and true, then he himself is not faithful and true. But John in Revelation, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is wanting to show us that just as God is faithful and true, his word is faithful and true. And so the, the, the church fathers were, I think, wanting to defend that and warning against those who would say, if there's errors in, in the Bible, you're going to read it into God, your faith is going to diminish, it's going to wreak havoc on your Christianity, it's not healthy. And I think what the church fathers have shown as well is that inerrancy is not a product of the Enlightenment, it's not a modern-day rationalistic attempt to do something weird, but it is, in fact, something that needs to be protected. It is a biblical truth that, um, that, that the church fathers, I think, were, were upholding. Absolutely. I, I kind of was chuckling to myself with that quote from Augustine because he sounds like a good Protestant there, doesn't he? <laughs> I have learned to yield this respect and honor only to the canonical books of Scripture. Of these alone mm. do I most firmly believe that the authors were completely free from error. Sola Scriptura. That is very, very a good quote. But I think we should also note here, too, that He's just following the footsteps, and these fathers are following the footsteps of what we see our Savior Jesus Christ doing in the Gospels. As he himself, and the, it's amazing that when God the Son came, he also demonstrated how to treat his own word. And he would point to places like in Matthew chapter 5 as the jot and the tittle, and saying that these smallest of Hebrew um, marks, that these will be fulfilled. In other words, that there's this prophetic thrust to the law and the prophets, and they were pushing forward, and that the entire scripture of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, would be fulfilled. It's All of its purpose is coming forward, and it's being fulfilled in this great climactic revelation 
of our Savior, uh, Jesus Christ, in the kingdom that he's bringing, and in the righteousness of the kingdom that he was inaugurating. And that went even down to that jot and the tittle, the smallest of Hebrew um, marks that could be made, that all of those were trustworthy, reliable. Why? Because they're all going to be fulfilled. The fact that they'd be fulfilled assumes their reliability. I was also thinking, too, as you were reading some of those about how the Lord Jesus, when he was going to combat with the devil and the temptation, or also with the, the, the Pharisees and scribes, that he would quote scripture and he would often allude to some very minor things that are being said there, but he's assuming there the reliability of each of the little smallest phrases. Like from Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, as he is engaging with the, the Pharisees, and who was who David speaking about if he said, my Lord? We well, talking about the Messiah. Well, how can David call his descendant, my Lord? And so again, these kinds of little tiny details that the Lord Jesus was pointing out, assuming a doctrine of infallibility, assuming a doctor of inerrancy, and holding God's word up to that great and glorious standard. And it really goes against, you know, some in the modern day where they would say, well, the general gists or meanings are, are inspired by God. That, 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 that could be an error, but not the words. Right. But then Jesus is like, look at this tiny little breath mark or this tiny little horn mark in Hebrew. Like that is important. That, that little tiny little mark that you might even gloss over on, on, on a fast read. That is important. Every word, every little jot and tittle. Um, yeah, it, it, it just goes, flies in the face that you can somehow separate the, this general gist meaning versus the word. It's like, no, they're, 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 they're connected, they're inerrant, they're given by God. So. But, but, and I think here maybe we, we've, I think, um, really affirmed inerrancy so far. Mm -hmm. I think we've kind of said, okay, this is what it is, this is the, the, the weightiness of this doctrine, uh, but it's probably also good to clarify what this doesn't mean. Sure. Um, in order that people don't misunderstand us. And also don't take it too far like in the wrong direction here. So um, what, what, what don't we mean sure. about the doctrine of inerrancy, Brandon? Yeah, some people will you know, hear the word inerrant, and then they want to apply like a scientific, pedantic precision onto the biblical text in ways that is just not, not appropriate, not healthy, uh, not what the authors intended. And so there was, um, years ago, there was a uh, kind of a meeting that, that gathered to talk about inerrancy, and some of the kind of the big, bigger name theologians were there, like R.C. Sproul and um, some of those other guys, and they, they were talking about, like, what is inerrancy, what, what, what it's not, and they put together, actually, uh, it's called the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, and in Article 13, I think that they, they helpfully captured like what it's not. And so, for example, they said in Article 13, We deny that it is proper to evaluate Scripture according to the standards of truth and error that are alien to its uses, uh, usage or purpose. We further deny that errancy is negated by biblical phenomena such as a lack of modern technical precision, irregularities of grammar or spelling, observational descriptions of nature, the reporting of falsehoods, the use of hyperbole and round numbers, the topical arrangement of material, variant sections of material in parallel accounts, or the use of free citations. So in other words, what they're, what they're denying is, like the, the Bible will say, like the sun rises, 
Well, you could get very scientific and say, well, does the sun actually scientifically rise? Well, they're speaking phenomenologically. They're speaking from the, from the vantage point of, of the viewer. And it's proper to do that. We say it today. The, the weatherman this morning said that. And so it might not be pedantically precision work in terms of a scientific sense, but that wasn't the intent of the writer. And it's, it's not an error from, a, from, a, um, um, from our vantage point to say that. Or the use of free citation. There are times when um, people will kind of cite something from a previous apostle or previous uh, prophet or something like that, but, but uh, not uh, quote it in the exact precise um, uh, way. They're kind of uh, in a way that if somebody said, hey, what did, what did Zach say? I could kind of paraphrase what he said to me. I don't have to give him the exact um, uh, verbal uh, punctuation and, and, and inflection and all of that. I can just give them the gist of what he said, and it's true um, and accurate, but it's not perhaps exactly word for word, um, comma for comma, uh, what he what he put forth, and that wasn't the intent of of the authors. So, what what Article Thirteen is saying is, don't cram something that is some like scientific thing or technical thing. Cram that and demand that of sacred scripture, uh, because sacred scripture is 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 true, and it's written from the vantage point of, of, of the author, oftentimes, again, speaking of the sun rising or something. Uh, but also, the Bible is written in different genres. So there's poetic genres that are speaking about cosmic things and, uh, and, and moon turning to blood. And, and so the Bible can write in different genres. It can also write in historic narrative and, and give very precise details and exact numbers of how many people were there and how many people died and, and so on and so forth. It can give that, but, but it, it can also give apocalyptic writings where it's speaking very inflatedly. Uh, the, the Bible can use hyperbole in terms of, 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 of its poetry. There's proverbs and pithy truths that are, um, or pithy statements that, um, that encapsulate general truths about creation and the created order and the natural workings of things. And uh, the Bible can give various genres, and so we don't want to somehow demand, so, you know, sometimes we, we go to like a, like a poetic genre, and we demand that it is almost like a historical narrative or something like that. It's like, well, that's not a historical narrative. That's a poetic genre. So we cannot demand something that the poetic genre does not have intrinsic to it. So I think that as we, as we think about the doctrine of inerrancy, we're understanding the different genres that, uh, that, that God inspired, and we're not, um, we're not cramming some sort of modern-day technical vocabulary into the Bible. Does that make sense? It does, absolutely. Let's uh, conclude maybe with a few um, practical reflections for our, for our listeners. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that one of the things that strikes me, especially from that uh, quote from Augustine the Pippo, is just the humility that this doctrine should um, create within us. It uh, should inspire us to be, inspire us to be um, humble Christians, to be uh, subjecting ourselves and our ideas and our culture's ideas to something that is of greater authority, of ultimate authority, something that is actually perfect. I think we can so tend to want to become influential or to uh, become liked. And um, so then we, we bring the, uh, the ideas and the words 
of our culture and we try to impose them and port them in, uh, upon our Christian lives and try to bring the Bible into conformity with it. Whereas this clearly uh, forces us to humble ourselves, humble our ideas, and to say, there's probably something wrong with me. And that the Bible really gets our ultimate deference. Um, and so I, th I think that's one practical place I'd be pointing. I think also too, just practically to help us to think about our doctrine of who God is. Mm. I think people who do deny these doctrines, they, they are going to be moving in a direction that is um, concerning, at the very least, in terms of how they view God, how they view God's role in this world, and whether they believe God is himself true or not, faithful and true, because they don't believe his word is faithful and true. And so I think that while we need to be humbled before the text of Scripture, I think humbling us before God himself is, um, is really the place where I would encourage myself and you and our listeners to, uh, to how to respond to this, but what, what are some of your thoughts? Yeah, I, I think you know just to echo everything that you said. I think it was it was helpful, and, and from a practical standpoint, the doctrine of inerrancy means that we can super rely on the Bible. That it's not mostly true. It, it is something that you can stake your entire life on, and it's something that can speak into your context. Um, you know, throughout even throughout the the the, the Bible, we see uh, times and periods. For example, I'm thinking of of Israel and the exile, or or Daniel, and you know, all the various books of the Bible where things looked very grim, and things culturally, um, things in society looked like it was just downright demonic, going in a, in, a, in a very bad path, and yet they would hold out to the promises of God, and they didn't. Um, give up the promises of God, and, 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 and for us too, no matter how much our eyes tell us one thing, the Bible tells us true reality. And so even if we're not seeing it with our eyes, we know it's true from sacred scripture. And sacred scripture is more true than even what we're perceiving around us. That as we enter the Bible, we're not entering a world of, well, it's kind of neat how they looked at, at, at the world back then. I mean, it's kind of neat how these ancient primitive people thought the world functioned. But no, when we enter scripture, we're entering real reality. And it's telling us what the world is actually like, who we actually are, and the character of who God actually is. And we're seeing all this with the clearest of, of spectacles as we come to sacred scripture and it's something that can speak into us and, and even um, help us to not succumb to maybe some of the the darkness that we see around us but it, it can be in fact a light unto our path uh, and, 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 and illumine for us um, our pilgrimage. Amen. Well we hope this has been helpful for you. This is the uh, Cincy Reform Podcast. You can find our other episodes at uh, cincyreforms.org and do join us at Westside Reformed Church. We are a URC congregation in Cincinnati. Find us at westsidereforms.org. We'd love to visit, uh, love to have you visit with us, and we'd love to um, have you join our church. So until next time, uh, thank you. Bye bye.